Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Y'all can have a seat. Once again, my name's Scott, the lead pastor here, and we're in a series called Redeeming Your Time. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 5. That's been kind of the foundation for us. So we've been having this discussion about redeeming our time, and this is what Ephesians chapter 5 says. And Patrick, you can pull the gain down just a little bit on this, man. Thanks for how you serve, friend. And it says this. It says, be very careful how you live. Don't, don't just like walk through this life without intention, without purpose. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you walk. And he says, redeeming your time, many translations might say, make the most out of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. So for Paul, the argument that he had just come up against in the first part of Ephesians was, because of all that Jesus has done, giving us life, adopting us into the kingdom of God, his grace, his mercy upon us, because he's made us new creations, those who are following Christ, because all of that is true, he, he says, therefore, then, redeem your time. In other words, it's the duty and the job of everyone who would call themselves a Christ follower to not be flippant, to not be dismissive about how we would use our time, that it's not even our own time, that it's on loan from God, that it's to be used for his purposes. Uh, this last week, uh, it was a joy to go and celebrate uh, the life of Dave Whitney with the Whitney family. Uh, that was a deep pleasure and joy. And as I'm there in this space, when you're at a funeral, you think about the temporality of life, don't you? And I'm sitting there thinking about all that you wish you would do on this earth, but then it made me also think about heaven. And the thing is, as good Christians, we like to think about heaven and all these things that we get to do, but the truth is there's some things that we only get to do here in this life. Think about this, that you only get to parent your kids when you're alive on this earth. It's just a blink. You blink in a moment and it's gone. This time is, is gone. You only get to celebrate the union with your spouse, celebrate marriage and embrace that for all that it is here in this world because Jesus said, did you know that Jesus said that in heaven you're neither married nor given in marriage? That when I say till death do us part, it means that at the end of this life, I'm not married to Jennifer anymore. And some of you are like, I don't have to be married to them for all eternity. This is not a bad thing. For me, my wife is so amazing. I, you know, that's something for me to mourn. But you know what else we can't do when we're in heaven? We won't be able to tell other people about the gospel and the good news of Jesus. We only get this life to share that story with other people. So that's part of why Paul says that. Be careful how you live. And so we would say, okay, I get it. Make the most of every opportunity, but how do I do that? Do I just follow the stream of culture around me and do what everyone else does? 
And we would say no, that the way that we redeem our time is that we would look at the person of Jesus Christ and live our life and kind of match up with his pace and align with not just the goals for his life, but also the methods about how he lived because we don't follow him only for the theology. We follow him for methodology as well. And so we've been looking at how Jesus in these few gospels that we only look at his life for three years, but there's so many power-packed principles about how we can redeem our time. We've been looking at five principles. You can certainly find even more, but there's certainly no less than this. The first one that we looked at in week one was that Jesus offers us peace before we do anything. So often we think the pathway to our peace will be through as we manage our projects and, and work harder. And the truth is, Jesus says, you, I'm going to give you peace internally before you ever work for it. I give you peace with God so you can be at peace with yourself. And that's the foundation of everything for us as Christians, that we don't work for God's approval, but since we have a relationship with him, since we do have peace with him, that I'm going to work not for his approval, but just to bless him, just to delight him. And it changes everything. I don't have to earn his favor anymore. That's principle one. And it, and it undermines and just kind of lays a foundation for everything. Principle number two is this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no from the smallest to the biggest commitments that we make. Now the challenge is this, is that we have dozens if not hundreds of commitments bopping around our brain all the time. And so the principle that we talked about was taking it outside of just our head and our heart and putting it into a trusted external system from a flow of our daily life. That means that we've got a pretty healthy to-do list and we manage it, get it out of our heads, put it inside something else that's trusted. But that's also true for our anxieties. Where we would say that, as Paul, Paul reminds us, to not be anxious but to present our requests before God with thanksgiving. And so we take this stuff inside us and we trust it into the hands of God. Let our yes be yes and our no be no from the smallest to the biggest commitments we make. And then last week, we looked at this reality that Jesus was not omnipresent. He was unipresent. He could only be in one place at one time when he put on the flesh. And what that means is if Jesus wasn't going to try and be in more than one place at once, then maybe you and I don't have to either. <laughs> that we can accept the limitations of our own flesh. And what that means is this. It means that we can't do everything. It means that we have to prioritize some things. That we don't give way to the urgent. Instead, we choose the important. And that's discernment for us. That's challenging. But when we embrace these limitations, it allows us to focus on one thing at a time. Now, this week's, this week's principle, I'm going to give you it. I'm going to give you a confession, and then we're going to unroll everything, okay? Here's the principle. The principle is that in, in, in order to redeem our time in the model of our Redeemer, we have to fight to block out noise, and we have to create room for silence, stillness, and reflection. We have to fight to block out noise, <clears throat> and then make room for silence, stillness, and reflection. Yesterday, I chose to take a few hours. We, we had um, taken down an apple tree in our front yard, and so the, the neighborhood is shaking their fist as we have a pile of branches and logs that has to be cleaned up in our yard. And so I borrowed um, a chipper from a friend, and I spent some time next to this gas-powered chipper, just one branch at a time, chipping up these, this brush. And so it was very, very noisy. 
And so you know what I did is I put on some hearing protection. And I worked for maybe an hour and a half with hearing protection on to drown out the noise. Noise is anything that gets in the way of the signals that we want to receive. It's anything that we intake. Now, this is how broken I am in this area. Not only did I have those headphones on, but I had my ears on inside of that to drown out the noise by listening to some podcasts and by bringing more intake into my brain. I could not even have the silence of that hour and a half. This is something I struggle with regularly, drowning out the noise and choosing to be still and silent and rest. Many ways you look at me and call me a busybody. Ask my wife. She would say, he can't sit still. In fact, this last week has been a doozy for me. Jen was gone all week in California. I flew out to Oregon, and I was back in 48 hours. So I got home, and I'm like trying to be really active and holding down the fort like Mr. Mom would, playing catch-up from being away all week. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I, didn't, I bypassed my Sabbath in order to, to engage in those activities. In short, as I've processed this last week, it's been really, really noisy for me. And as I've been praying about this and preparing for this talk, I even reached out to my elders and I said, guys, I'm going to get up in front of this congregation and tell them about how they need to embrace stillness and silence and rest. And I feel like a failure and a hypocrite because my, my world has been so noisy. And many times as I have time at home, I'll run this, like, little, this little test I wonder if as the family's buzzing around our first floor, I wonder if I can just sit down on the couch and not turn anything on and just sit. How long can I make it in silence? How long could you make it in silence? Some of you are Enneagram fives and you're like, that's my jam. You're speaking my language. I love silence. I'll take it all day long. I know who you are. But then there's the rest of us. That's deafening when it's that silent. Truth is, there's going to be seasons for us like that where it's going to be noisy. There's going to be a lot going on. There's a lot demanding of us. It feels like there's a lot of messages and voices in our heads going 100 miles an hour. We have to fight to block out noise and create room for stillness and for reflection. If you ever feel that way, um, then you'll, you'll love what Jesus has to say this week. Or maybe you'll find it really, really challenging what he has to say this week because this is something that Jesus modeled over and over again in the Gospels, just all over the place. And so I want to show you that. We're going to just kind of unroll this idea of what Jesus asked us to do. In Mark chapter 6, and this is going to be in the Orange Bibles, page 687. If you don't have a physical Bible, please take one. We'd love to give it to you. Page 687. It's just a few verses, but it's so very powerful. And this is what it says. It says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, this is interesting that in this moment, they call them the apostles. 
This is Mark speaking. This is Peter telling Mark what happened. Mark is writing it down, so this is really Peter's account. And Peter calls them the apostles. Now, why did he call them the apostles? Because it had been disciples up to this point. A disciple is simply an apprentice of Jesus, someone studying the life of Jesus, like a student of Jesus. Apostle is very different. An apostle means this. It means the sent ones. Someone who has a commission, someone who's been given authority. Because what had happened right before this was Jesus had gone to these 12 disciple apostles and had given them authority, sent them out two by two, and now they had a commission. Their commission was going to be that they would go into the communities and they would do what Jesus had done, declaring the kingdom of God and healing people and driving out demons. Now, this is actually a huge deal. It's a little bit of an aside, but it's a huge deal. Because they weren't just students of Jesus. Jesus gave them a commission. They were out doing the things of Jesus. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus wasn't just teaching them. He was giving them authority. Now, this is a big deal because God is an authority-divesting God. He gave authority to Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave authority to the spiritual beings to govern. He gives authority for people in this world to govern. That's what he does. That's what God does. God gives authority. And yet Jesus shows up, and he doesn't just speak about God. He speaks as if he is God, and he gives them authority, and then guess what? Those disciples go into these communities, and now they're speaking about the kingdom of God, and they're healing people the same way they saw Jesus do this. This is a big deal. And they're going around, and they're experiencing all of that, and I just imagine that they're getting pumped as this happens. Like, we're healing people. Can you imagine this? We saw Jesus do it, but now when I prayed over them, boom, the guy could see. This is amazing, and they're pumped about it. And so these groups, it would be six groups of two would go out into the community and do all of this. Well, the king found out about this. Herod, the king, found out about this. And he starts getting freaked out. He's like, whoa, I knew it was like Jesus, but now it's spreading. This is crazy. Wait a minute, he got scared all of a sudden, it tells us right before this in, book, uh, in, the, in, in the, uh, the book of Mark. He was scared because he thought, well, maybe this is John the Baptist who's come back from the dead because he had John the Baptist beheaded because of all the things that he was preaching and who he was. So he's freaked out, like Herod's like freaked out. And so here are these disciples, they're pumped, they're excited, they're experiencing highs they're like we've never done this before this is great Herod finds out and it's like whoa whoa baby we might actually have some risk upon our lives here and so the the disciples the apostles show up and they start reporting to Jesus everything that they had said everything that they had done and then it says this in verse 31 it says then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. And you could imagine that if it wasn't just Jesus healing, but it's like his, all of his friends as well, people coming from far and wide. And they didn't even have a chance to eat. You ever felt pressed like that? <laughs> I couldn't even slow down to take a, a meal. That's what they were experiencing. Now it's fascinating, in the middle of all of that, okay? So it's not just Jesus' ministry, you know, hitting the street, now it's invested in its disciples, they're spreading the good news, they're healing people, it's amazing, people are turning, they're repenting, Jesus gave them this commission, he said, hey, when you go, here's what I want you to do, I don't want you to bring money, 
I just want you to wear like sandals and bring a hiking stick. And when you go out and when you find someone and they receive your message, you let your peace be upon them. But if they reject you, he says, I, wanna, I want you to shake the dust off of your feet. Kind of a sign of, of a rebuke against them and a dismissal against them. And so they would have also gone out and they would have experienced people who would have rejected them. And I just imagine them showing up and being like, Philip, why are you speaking as if you're all that? I grew up with you. You were that punk in fourth grade. And so they're experiencing these highs and these lows and this like relational conflict and then Herod is like maybe going to come after him. Who knows what's going to happen there? And they show up to Jesus. Jesus, can you listen to what's going on here? And what I find so amazing about his response is he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, okay, guys, let's talk about what it means to manage your tasks well. Let's talk about how you deal with conflict with other people. No, let's, let's, let's work on our priorities. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say this is how you come at it as a team and you know, play the good cop, bad, like good disciple, bad disciple, dealing with conflict over here. He doesn't say any of that. This is what he does. He says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place so that you can get some rest. It says, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. When the discipleship market was getting hotter, when it was up and to the right, when they were in more demand, when things were going well, when it was most pressing, what does he say? He says, okay, come with me to a quiet place. Get some rest. You know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to have those seasons where you're just plugging away and you've got a lot of hours, you've got a log. That's okay. But we need to unplug. Well, Jesus, what about all these people? I mean, they need to be healed. I mean, they're asking for us. We're like a big deal. They need us. There's a lot of opportunity. Jesus would say, listen, they're always going to be there. There's always going to be someone who needs your attention. But if you're going to be able to minister to them, if you're going to have the fortitude to persevere, you need to unplug. It's okay to have these seasons where we just feel the strain, but Jesus speaks to them what he would speak to us. The answer is not always to double down and to manage. It's to step away, to be recharged, that it's okay to take a break. In fact, it's going to help you be more productive. So let me ask you the question that often plagues me. When was the last time you've just sat or experienced a quiet place? free from intake, free from listening, free from the voices of someone else, and you've just been present in your own body, you've been present in your own soul, you've been present with your own emotions and your own thoughts and your own confusions and your own joys, when have you just had silence? Is it deafening for you like it is for me? Dietrich Bonhoeffer stated this, that we're so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order to not have to spend a moment alone with ourselves. 
in order to not have to look at ourselves in the mirror. It's true, isn't it? Jesus said, come with me. Buy yourselves a quiet place so that you can get some rest. And so we have to fight to block out the noise and to pursue having silence, stillness, and reflection. This last summer, I bought a computer for my family. I, one of my children needed it for school. And I wanted a computer to play a flight simulator on. I'm 42 years old. I'm going to buy myself a computer so I can play video games. So that's what I did. I got this laptop, and it was like this like super mega graphics card in this laptop so that it could handle anything we threw at it, and it was awesome, and could do the flight simulator. It's really, really neat. I love it. And, and it's really cool because on top of the laptop, it has this button that says turbo, right? So if you press the button, the fans kick up. It does like, it like, I guess it goes to over, it gets overclocked. I guess that's what's happening there. And so we would press the button and feel like, yeah, now we can really play our video games. The problem was it started to malfunction, it wouldn't run updates, some things it just wouldn't do. I couldn't figure it out, and so I called Eric, uh, who really knows about computers like a lot. I'm pretty good with computers. He's a 10 levels higher than me. And so Eric took a look at it, and he said, you know, these computers are not meant to be run with that turbo on. He says, if you do that, what's going to happen is the thermal load inside of this, this is not created to be able to sustain that because they make these things so thin and light so people can take it with them all the time and have that convenience with them all the time and you're actually going to damage the electronics because they didn't give it proper airflow. Because we ran it on turbo the whole time, we damaged it and we had to send it back to the manufacturer to get fixed. Turns out that you and I are not meant to be run on turbo all the time either. If we keep doing that, we'll run, 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 run. And then we'll crash, 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 crash. If we're gonna, run, if we're gonna redeem our time in the model of our redeemer, this is what we gotta learn to do. We have to learn to turn off the turbo. We have to get good airflow. We have to be able to rest or will it damage the electronics as well inside of us? You know, what Jesus really taught us in that short little passage is that in order to redeem our time, we really have to embrace productive rest. See, oftentimes we'll look at it and we'll think, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm not accomplishing anything. I have so much I need to do, so I need to get more done. I need to get more done. I need to get more done. Listen, this is completely counterintuitive to us, but many times in order to do more, we have to choose to do less. We have to rest more because God didn't create us as if this was a sprint, and he didn't create us as if this is a marathon. He created us as if our life is a workout. Few people have studied this topic more deeply than Tony Schwartz, CEO of the Energy Project. Schwartz said that human beings are not designed to run like computers at high speeds continuously for long periods of time. He says we're designed to pulse. I love that, designed, it's this terrific choice of words because as scientists have discovered, God has hardwired hard us 
to pulse every other hour in something that's called altridian cycles. Essentially, it's this, that our brains move from higher to lower levels of alertness every 90 minutes. And at the end of that 90-minute cycle, our brains need a break. And altridian cycles are our body's way of demanding that we work for 90 minutes and then rest for 15 to 30 and then start all over again, repeating the cycle on a bi-hourly basis all throughout the day. And maybe as you even think about your work cycles, as I was, I was chipping that wood, you know how, good I, how long I was good for? 90 minutes. And then I needed to go take a rest. In fact, what I found out in college as well was in my last two years of college as I was studying classical music, our music program was the hardest program in the school. And those last two years, I had to practice 14 hours a week. So two hours a day of practicing. And what I found is if I would practice for large chunks of time, that I actually got less out of that as if, than if I practiced for an hour, maybe 90 minutes, and then went out on a walk refreshed my brain, grabbed a snack, talked with someone, did something to let my brain kind of reset itself. In fact, I use this all the time, even in my studio. If a student for 20 minutes has been hitting up against a wall over and over again, I'll say, wait, hold on. You're not getting anywhere with that. Go touch that telephone pole, come back. Do some jumping jacks, do some push-ups, whatever you need to do. Reset your brain, and then almost invariably, that reset allows them to come back and say, all right, I got this now, and they move right past it. God has created us that way as well. There was a study made famous by Malcolm Gladwell that found that 10,000 hours of practice made someone an an expert. 10,000 hours of experience made someone an expert at what they did. And they figured that out by studying these violinists. The top performing violinists in that study shared two things in common. That they worked harder in 90-minute blocks of what's called deep work uninterrupted, focused work. And then at the end of that, they rested harder, taking breaks between each block of practice. It was true for them. I bet you it's true for you in your world. And even as I've been prepping and preparing for all of this, I started to schedule my work cycle within the day. I have that kind of freedom. Not everybody does, but I do. And so I would schedule a two-hour block of uninterrupted focused time. So much more productive for me. It's worth trying. But you know what else was true about these top performing violinists? Is that they all got one hour more of sleep than the rest of their counterparts who did not perform as well. Turns out that those kinds of cycles that God has built into who we are is not just within the day, but is with the way that we sleep, like our nightly sleep patterns. It's so fascinating. How many times do we see Jesus where they're like freaking out and where's Jesus? Oh, he's he's sleeping. It's as if Christ knew that there needed to be this rest, this reset that would take place. A researcher, name is Matthew Walker, professor of neuroscience, he summarized research linking sleep to our productivity, saying that a a failure to get adequate sleep is worse for your performance than an equivalent absence of food or exercise or showing up to work drunk. He said, routinely sleeping less than six or seven hours demolishes your immune system, substantially increases your risk of cancer, and contributes to all major psychiatric, psychiatric conditions, including depression, anxiety, and suicidality. 
I think probably the most fascinating benefit is that sleep enhances our creative problem solving. He said, sleep provides a nighttime theater in which your brain tests out and builds connections between vast stores of information. It's the difference between knowledge and retention of individual facts and wisdom or knowing how they all fit together. This played out for me in the last six hours. I'll, I'll prepare for everything that God might want me to speak or say. I'll study his word, but making connections from one thing, finding the power, understanding how it's gonna flow, how can I can make it real in people's lives, that part is often elusive for me. And if I just sit and stare at my computer screen or at my journal, it will, it, it will fail me. More times than I can count, it's at 5 a.m. after I've slept, and I'm just sitting there in that half-awake state in Eureka, there's the connection, there's the, connect, there's the power that comes out of the passage. Almost weekly that happens to me. And my father, who is also a pastor, he said his best sermon prep was on Sunday during nap time. <laughs> Excuse me, on Saturday during, during nap time. That happens to me all the time. That's why we've never been told to stay awake on a problem. Instead, we're told, why don't you sleep on it? See what happens. For that benefit alone, sleeping is one of the most productive things we can do to redeem our time. And many of you are like, amen. D.A. Carson, the theologian and co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, he used some pretty strong words. He says, you are morally obligated to try to get the sleep that you need. He said, sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is to get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. That's strong language. Why did he use such strong language? It's probably because he understands that like those bi-hourly altridian breaks, nightly sleep makes us more productive as we work to build God's kingdom in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our lives. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. There was some research where they, they said, um, you know, think about the way that maybe a long, long time ago, how people would have processed time, that we would go to sleep when the sun went down, we would wake up when the sun came up, that's how we maybe could understand the sun being high in the sky and then it, it being low in the sky. Until, until someone all of a sudden had this groundbreaking technology called the sundial. And in the sundial, there's, there was a Roman playwright, Plautus was his name, that wrote about that. And he said, gods, the gods confound the man who created that and broke my day into such dastardly little pieces. So the next time you're late for something, you can just quote him and say, gods confound the man who created the sundial. And it's fascinating And then Edison created the light bulb, which meant that we no longer had to be limited by when the sun went up and when the sun went down. Did you know that before the light bulb, the average number of, this is amazing, this is an amazing stat here. The average number of sleep, uh, hours of sleep that people had before the light bulb was 11 hours of sleep. You know what it is now? Yeah, six or seven. All because of that. Jesus says to his disciples, come away with me. You need to get rest. You need to recharge. This isn't just a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. You are created as physical beings. And newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, the bodies God gave us are good. He looked at that. He said, that's good. Now, there's going to come a day where we're glorified, but for the rest of our eternity, we're going to be physical beings. 
He says, come with me, get some rest. It's the most spiritual thing you can do. Now listen, Jesus wasn't just escaping the problems of the world. That's not what it was. Sometimes we can look at our problems, I need some rest, I just need to get away from that. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He was pulling his disciples back to be prepared to engage, to be at their best, because he knew they were human. And we're not meant to run on turbo all the time. We have to turn off the turbo. Let me ask you a question, just as we kind of pull it together here. Can you think of the last time, the last time that you've had uninterrupted, intentional times of solitude, silence, and reflection? When's the last time that's, that's happened for you where your phone's not ringing, or someone's not texting you, where you're not listening to a podcast or music? When was the last time that's happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? That's hard for me. That's hard for me. It's completely counterintuitive. But I want us to remember this, that God doesn't need us to finish our to-do lists. He invites us to peace. He says, I'm gonna complete the work that I've started in you. Come with me, get some rest, recharge. Listen, when we don't do that, when we don't do that, there are consequences in our lives. One of the consequences is this, when we can't silence our brains and when we constantly have to ingest and listen and here's another podcast and here's another sermon, well I listen to Timothy Keller and I listen to Matt Chandler and I listen to Andy Stan, and all these people that I just ingest, 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 ingest. After a while we end up living off of everyone else's spirituality and not our own. We haven't, we haven't silenced our hearts enough to listen from, from God, to be aware of what's going on in our hearts we only ever read about someone else's growth with God, and we say, God, why don't we have any? Why can't I have any of that? Many times when we don't have silence, we feel distant from ourselves, almost like an out-of-body experience. We lose sight of who we are, our identities, our, our callings, this undercurrent of anxiety rarely, if ever, goes away. And then we, we get exhausted, and we wake up, the alarm goes off and you're like, man, already I have to get up? Goodness. Can't wait till I get to go back to bed again. And then we start getting energy on loan from the stimulant of choice. No wonder that energy drink market is worth 57 billion. And then as a result of that, we become easy prey for the tempter and we start giving in to those sins that so easily pull us in. And we start living from the surface of our lives, not from the core. We start being reactionary. And the smallest things become a trigger for us, like a throwaway line from a coworker or a boss, a suggestion from the spouse or the roommate. It doesn't take much. We lose our temper. We bark at the kids. We get defensive. We sulk. We feel angry, maybe sad, many times both. Those are all the things that can happen when we don't allow our hearts to be refreshed, when we don't embrace the cycles that God has built into us, but there's an alternative for us as well, that when we embrace rest, we find quiet places in unlikely environments. You're at the airport, you just settle and sit and breathe and listen. You find quiet places in unlikely places, 
We take our time to kind of decompress from all the noise. We breathe, we come back to the present. We're present with people because we're not bound by the tyranny of the noise of notifications. We start to feel again. And when we start to feel, here's what happens as you sit there and you start to acknowledge what's happening inside of you rather than just silencing that anxiety and silencing what's happening inside of you. It's just easier to watch YouTube. It's just easier to listen. When we can silence that, when we can have that discipline, we start to recognize that there's something happening inside of us and we may not even like it. God, why am I so anxious right now? And because we've silenced those noises, the Spirit can actually speak to us in ways that we can understand. And we soften our heart to that, and He speaks to that, and we start to replace the lies of the enemy with the truths of what God says about us. God, I'm anxious because my spouse isn't treating me the way that I want them to. God says, you know what? They never will. And you'll never be able to find your satisfaction in them. You've got to come to me and I'm going to offer it to you. See, that, that kind of deep soul work that each and every one of us need, it doesn't happen when it's so noisy that we can't even listen to our own hearts. We get addicted to the noise. We have headphones over headphones with ears on the inside to fill the noise. And we can face the good and the bad and the ugly of our own hearts and God speaks to that. Guys, it's redemptive. It's restorative. That's part of what Jesus was saying to these disciples. Come away with me. There's so much noise. You can't even hear from God right now. And if you're gonna press on into ministry, if you're gonna make a difference in your family, if you're gonna make any difference at work, you've gotta come with me and you've got to get Rest. You cannot run on turbo the whole time. Guys, we're not good at this. We're just not. I'm telling you, if I sat down with five people and I said, how are you? Three of them would come back. Three or four would come back and say, I'm just so busy. I can't slow down. So the challenge that I, I want to give you, and we kind of do this every week, right? Like I want to give you a way to put some shoe leather on this and take it into your life so it's not just a thought, but it's something that you can take action on. The challenge is this, that you would embrace that kind of silence and solitude regularly every day. You figure out how you got to do this. This is how I do it. Um, and I brought my life group gentleman into this too. Like for me, I choose to leave my phone at home and I take my dog on a 20 or 30 minute walk. The first time, it kind of freaked me out. Again, what if someone needs me? And, and now I find myself just talking to the Lord. I'm raising my hands in worship. McMonagles, it's going to be weird if you look at me as I walk. I'll just have my hands out sometimes. And God meets me in that space. And it's only 20 minutes, but it's a way of saying, God, I'm going to trust you to recharge me. And so that's a challenge for you, whatever it might be. It might be that walk. It might be sitting by your fireplace. It might be just sitting upright in your living room. Who knows what that might be, but can you embrace that kind of silence? Embracing productive rest, turning off the turbo. It's what Jesus invited his disciples to do and what he invites us as well towards. All right, let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. This is um, in, in some sense like super service level. Did my pastor just tell me to take a break and sleep? Like, yeah, right? But it also requires like another level of trust before God. 
to walk into this. And so it's, it's a big deal. Why don't you pray with me? God, um, you know my heart today, how sometimes miserable I am at this very thing that we're talking about today. I just confess that before you, God. You know that. You see that. And even today, Lord, my heart just really needs that kind of Sabbath rest. And we're going to talk about that even next week. God, would you lead us in that direction to be people that don't waste our time by just filling it, filling it, filling it, filling it, filling it but being courageous enough to drown out the noise, to stare at the own fallenness, ugliness, boredom of our own heart, to embrace silence, stillness, and reflection in your name. God, we need you for all of this. We come before you. We just have kind of this posture of surrender before you to see our anxieties, to replace that with the stillness that you have to offer. God, we love you, we praise you, we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.